This program has been approved for one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. This webcast has also been approved for ABIM Maintenance of Certification, MOC points, through the partnership between the ACCME and the ABIM. The following continuing medical education activity is the property of The Ohio State University. Duplication is prohibited by law. The Ohio State University is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, also known as ACCME. OSU Center for Continuing Medical Education designates this CME activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Each physician should claim only those credits that are actually spent on this CME activity. In keeping with the essential standards of the ACCME, planning committee members and participating faculty have been asked to disclose any relationship with commercial entities, discussion of commercial products, services, or unapproved off-label usage of commercial products or devices. Specific disclosure information can be obtained by contacting the Center for Continuing Medical Education at ccme.osu.edu. The information presented in this CME activity is meant for educational purposes only. Physicians' own judgment must remain central in the selection of the therapy options for their patients' specific medical conditions. The following is supported in part by the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. Oral Pathology for Physicians. That's today's presentation with the following distinguished faculty from the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital and Solov Research Institute. And now, our medical editor and moderator, Dr. Jing Jing Mao. The mouth is such a fascinating part of our body. Our teeth, for example, are unique from person to person, making it possible to identify a person by their dental record. Enamel on the surface of our teeth is the hardest substance in the body, and our tongue is the strongest muscle in the body relative to its size. The insides of our mouths can contain billions of bacteria, and it can be a window to our health, too. Many chronic diseases such as heart disease, diabetes, and osteoporosis can be linked to oral and dental health. In our medical training, we don't always get much education on oral health and pathology, but diseases of the mouth are extremely common. For example, worldwide, dental caries is the single most common chronic condition affecting 2.5 billion people. Nearly a billion people also have severe gum disease. And many patients do not have a dental home, meaning they often present to the physician for their oral complaint. In 2003, a study showed that in a four-year period, there were nearly 3 million emergency department visits in the United States for dental complaints. There are, of course, many other conditions that affect the mouth other than dental caries or broken teeth. So to help us figure out what we're treating, today I've invited two of Ohio State University's oral and maxillofacial pathology experts to discuss common oral pathology for the physician. I am pleased to introduce Associate Professor of Dentistry, Dr. Kristen McNamara, and Professor of Dentistry, Dr. John Kalmar. Kristen, John, welcome back to the program. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Um, now, Kristen, many of us may not be too familiar with what an oral pathologist does and how an oral pathologist is trained. What is the training required to become an oral pathologist? 
Yeah, it's one of the uh, smaller dental specialties, so a lot of folks don't realize that oral pathologists exist, um, but we do, uh, following our four-year dental training, mm -hmm. we do a three-year residency training program in oral and maxillofacial pathology. Excellent. And John, where does one find an oral pathologist and how do you get your referrals? Oral and maxillofacial pathology is generally limited to the larger medical and dental centers where they have either training programs or the need for teachers of oral and maxillofacial pathology. Um, so there are now more community-based oral pathologists, but generally you look to the larger schools, dental schools, dental colleges, and that's where you find your oral pathologists. In mm -hmm. terms of referrals for uh, the need for clinical oral pathology, it's across the board. We see it from primary care physicians, from dentists, dental specialists, uh, even physician assistants that mm -hmm. forward them to our evaluation and care. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much. Now, if you haven't already, please check out our website at go.osu.edu slash mednet21. You can find all of our programs on um, our website along with the slides and the instructions to receive your CME credit or your internal medicine MOC points. You can also listen to our programs by podcast. Search for OSU MedNet 21 on your podcast app. If you have any questions about any of our programs or about this program, please send that to us using the Ask a Question feature on the bottom of the webcast. Now let's get started. Kristen? Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here speaking of oral pathology. Um, there are obviously a vast number of conditions that can affect the oral cavity and the oral mucosa. And so we're really going to um, spend today focusing on a selection of conditions uh, that we feel would be important for a practicing physician. So specifically, I will start out by reviewing the clinical features of oral candidiasis with really focusing on the vast um, clinical spectrum that you can see um, as far as the oral mucosal changes you can see associated with an oral candidal infection. I'm then going to go on to talk about coated tongue and particularly differentiating um, this unrelated condition that's often mis, um, a misconception is that it may be associated, which it is not. Um, and then we'll, I'll transfer over to Dr. Kalamar, and he'll move on to speak about co um, common oral ulcers, including aphthous ulcers, traumatic ulcers, and preneoplastic ulcers, uh, with really a, a focus on the key clinical features um, to differentiate the potentially malignant oral lesions. Uh, and through all of this, we'll obviously update modern management strategies. So as far as our outline, I'll start off with candidiasis. I'm um, talking about both pseudomembranous candidiasis and the various clinical presentations of erythematous candidiasis. We'll then talk about the unrelated condition of coated tongue. And then um, John Kalma will move on to the oral ulcers. So starting with candida albicans, as, as many of you are probably aware, uh, this is a dimorphic yeast. We consider it a yeast-like fungal organism. Um, that's really a very common colonizer of the oral cavity. We think that about 50% or up to 50% of, of asymptomatic adults um, will carry this as sort of a commensal form um, of the organism. Um, and actually the presence in the oral cavity seems to increase uh, with increasing patient age. Um, so again, many of us just carry it kind of commensally. However, in certain scenarios, whether it be locally, uh, factors within the oral cavity or systemically, there may be situations where this commensal organism can transition to be uh, pathogenic um, and may lead to infection. And there are multiple clinical presentations of candida albicans, which is really my goal today um, to help you appreciate that broad spectrum of what you may see with um, mucosal changes. 
So starting off with pseudomembranous candidiasis, also known as thrush. Uh, this is sort of the poster child for candidiasis. When people think of an oral candidal infection, they kind of automatically think of that white kind of curdled milk or cottage cheese-like um, plaques that you can see that are, that are easily um, wiped off. Um, well, this is the most well-recognized. It's not the most common form. We're going to move into some of the other um, conditions in a moment, but let's review this more common one first. Uh, most, most common sites you might see would be bulk mucosa, palatal mucosa, and tongue. And I would highlight really the ventral lateral surfaces of the tongue. We rarely see pseudomembranous candidiasis on the dorsal surface, but ventral lateral tongue would be a common location. Um, and this may be asymptomatic, um, but can be um, associated with a mild burning sensation or potentially an unpleasant taste. As far as the clinical presentation, which probably everyone has, has seen or been, be aware of, uh, again, you've got these white, um, kind of slightly raised plaques. This is diffusely involving the buccal mucosa. And, you know, the, the thing that we always teach is, you know, when you see a, a white plaque is to see, you know, is it removable or not? Can it be wiped away? And you can see after I've taken a, a dry piece of gauze, you can see kind of more superficially there. There's now a region that looks like it's been, um, you know, kind of wiped clean. If I had used my gauze and moved around further, I could easily have wiped away all of these white plaques, revealing a pretty, you know, smooth pink underlying um, oral mucosal surface. You may see a little bit of erythema, but these organisms are really very superficially positioned. Um, they're not invading really deep um, into the epithelial surface or, or, or deeper. So um, you, you typically don't see much in the way of mucosal changes once you've removed that plaque. We'll move on to um, erythematous candidiasis, which I'll spend most of the time talking about today. This is the, the form that is actually more common than pseudomembranous candidiasis, but much, uh, I think, less recognized. Um, as the name implies, this clinically presents with an area of redness or erythema. Um, can have variable borders, can be a well-defined zone of erythema, or maybe more blended, ill-defined area. Uh, the dorsal tongue is actually um, probably the most common site that we see erythematous candidiasis, which again is in contrast um, to the pseudomembranous candidiasis that we just spoke of. Um, it may also involve the pedal mucosa, oral commissures, and even perioral skin. So there's various different forms or kind of subheadings um, under the broad category of erythematous candidiasis. The first here is acute atrophic candidiasis, also known as antibiotic sore mouth. This, again, as the name implies, has an acute onset, an abrupt onset uh, that presents as atrophy, so diffuse atrophy of the dorsal tongue papillae. Looks kind of like a bald, you know, smooth area, um, can be fairly diffuse, um, particularly after use of a broad-spectrum antibiotic. So a patient takes a broad-spectrum antibiotic um, for any number of reasons, um, and this can sometimes be a sequelae uh, once the bacterial and fungal organisms kind of get tipped out of balance. Uh, this is typically associated with a burning sensation. So here you can see the patient has a very diffuse, you know, bald appearance of the dorsal tongue, very smooth, erythematous. Again, this occurred very abruptly um, after the use of a bronze spectrum antibiotic, and the tongue was clinically sore. So a very classic presentation um, for antibiotic sore mouth. The next here, another um, clinical presentation you may see, um, is called central papillary atrophy. Um, this was probably uh, what was previously referred to as median rhomboid glossitis, if you're familiar uh, with that terminology. Um, this form of erythematous candidiasis is most likely due to a chronic candidal infection. It usually is asymptomatic um, and will occur um, as a very well-defined area of erythema or redness on the mid-posterior dorsal tongue. 
So here's a fairly classic example. You can see, um, you know, the name is very descriptive here, central papillary atrophy. So the central portion of the mid-posterior dorsal tongue has this zone of atrophy where you can see it's lost that normal papillary architecture that you typically see on the dorsal tongue. Um, so again, like a little bald patch uh, in the posterior dorsal tongue. Here's another example, slightly larger, but again, a fairly well-defined zone of erythema that looks rather smooth or atrophic, kind of lost that papillary architecture. And then following a course of antifungal treatment, you can see that that area is kind of repapillating or that papillary architecture is filling back in nicely. Another form of erythematous candidiasis is called angular chylitis. Um, this is usually related to a candidal infection, but may actually have other cutaneous um, bacterial microflora admixed, maybe like Staph aureus. Um, the classic clinical presentation is to be seen in folks who have loss of the posterior dentition, um, maybe wearing dentures or removable partials, where they've got like a, a reduced vertical dimension of occlusion where they're kind of overclosed um, because of their um, dentures. Um, and so they get kind of a more um, pronounced kind of fold at the corner of their mouth that can remain moist. Um, and then they can develop this infection within that zone. Clinically, it's usually a zone of redness uh, and cracking at the corners of the mouth. It does typically respond well to topical antibiotics, uh, but keep in mind, most folks that have this usually have an oral mucosal infection as well. So you need to kind of concurrently treat um, the intraoral component. So here's a nice example, bilateral commissures, kind of the angles of the mouth. You'll see zones of erythema with sort of central kind of cracking. Another example, we've got a kind of zone of erythema with a little bit more maybe crusted um, surface appearance here. And then the condition perioral candidiasis, you can kind of think of it as just a little bit more dramatic um, example of similar process that's going on with angular chylitis. Um, you know, typically it's going to be associated with some sort of habit um, or scenario that keeps the area moist. So we know that the cutaneous part of our, our lips is really meant to be dry. Um, so folks who have kind of chronic lick, limi, lick lipping, <laughs> That's a tongue twister. Lip licking habits um, or chronic use of petroleum-based materials. We all probably are you know, familiar with folks who are kind of chapstickaholics that are kind of continuously applying chapstick. Um, these things that keep the area moist, kind of lock in moisture, kind of can set up a, a scenario or an environment that's conducive for infection. Um, again, usually related to candidal infection, but may have other cutaneous bacterial uh, microflora mixed. Similarly, um, to, um, angular chylitis, redness and cracking of the cutaneous surface. In this case, it's just going to be in a perioral, um, kind of circumferential uh, clinical distribution. And again, typically responds well to topical antifungal. So here's an example of, of a woman. You can see she's got pretty diffuse, um, kind of, um, I guess, cracking, um, kind of exfoliative appearance, kind of crusting. Uh, you can see it's diffusely involving the upper and lower uh, lip vermilion. Um, as well as the cutaneous surface inferior to that lower lip. Um, she has a habit of licking her lips as well as kind of sucking in the lower lip um, you know, into her mouth a little bit. That kind of keeps that area moist as well, giving it this little bit more diffuse um, clinical involvement. Uh, as far as diagnosis, the clinical signs and symptoms are often sufficient. Being aware of the various clinical presentations of candidiasis is usually enough to make a presumptive um, diagnosis and treat empirically. Uh, we will um, perform a culture exfoliative cytology if we'd like to confirm the diagnosis, um, but biopsy is often unnecessary. 
as far as treatment goes, um, any of the more mild kind of topical um, or mild systemic antifungal drugs um, are effective. Um, in my practice, I primarily use clotrimazole trochies. Um, a lot of folks will use nystatin, a suspension kind of liquid base. Um, you know, they both are topical treatments that should theoretically work equally well, um, but the trochies, the lozenges that you suck on are typically just better um, uh, managed, I, I would say. Um, compliance for patients, it's easier to hold a lozenge in your mouth and dissolve it slowly than to hold a liquid in your mouth for any length of time. Um, fluconazole tablets can also be used, Diflucan. I typically use that in clinical scenarios where the patient's got a really severe case of xerostomia and have difficulty dissolving the lozenges. Um, and then for the perioral presentation, the angular chylitis or perioral candidiasis, um, typically you're going to want a combination antibiotic um, with a corticosteroid. So dermazine cream is a nice um, choice. Um, treats both the um, fungal and bacterial organisms because it's got hydrocortisone along with the adequinol that has the antibiotic um, properties. And then, of course, remember if they have a removable prosthesis, um, that also needs to be cleaned and treated. Um, we will use a mild bleach solution if it's a complete denture, but if it's got any um, metal subparts, that's typically where I use the Nystatin, have them soak their partials in a Nystatin suspension to disinfect those partials. And then just briefly, I want to touch on coated tongue. Um, this is an unrelated condition, but I find a lot of referrals that come into me are patients who have a coated tongue and are diagnosed with a yeast infection. After multiple rounds of antifungal, they, they're like, why is this not resolving? And so I find that it's a, it's a common um, challenge, I think, to differentiate from a yeast infection. So just to kind of briefly review, um, this is basically simply accumulation of keratin. So kind of um, elongation of the filiform papillae and the dorsal tongue, either due to increased production of keratin or decreased removal of keratin. So we know that um, the keratin on our tongue gets kind of knocked off and ingested uh, with our food, as maybe unpleasant as that might sound. Um, <clears throat> but you can, re you can build up extra keratin <clears throat> in the um, scenario of kind of mild chronic irritation. So people who um, are heavy smokers in particular will build up a little extra keratin on the dorsal tongue as kind of a protective function. Likewise, if the keratin's not being knocked off with our abrasive diet, maybe people who are denture wearers or have a softer diet may build up a little extra keratin. So you may have more or less keratin on the tongue depending on the environment. It really is um, inconsequential. It's a completely asymptomatic condition, harmless process. Sometimes the keratin can become so long it looks almost hair-like, and so the, the term hairy tongue um, is another term we sometimes use. I can see the picture um, shows just diffuse keratosis of the dorsal tongue. Another example, maybe a little bit less dramatic, but again, diffuse hyperkeratosis of the dorsal tongue, completely asymptomatic and no association with infection. Now, occasionally the papillae can become discolored. That keratin can be a little bit more brownish or sometimes blackish in color, usually due to colonization by pigment-producing bacteria or from extrinsic staining. Remember, many of these folks will be heavy smokers, so they may get just some superficial staining. Again, it's, it's a harmless process. No treatment is necessary. Um, some folks may want to reduce the appearance of this coated tongue, um, particularly if it's stained like in this patient, uh, or maybe want to be a little bit more hygienic. Um, and so certainly you can recommend that they either brush their tongue with their toothbrush or get a tongue scraper. Just gentle brushing or scraping once or twice a day um, is enough to kind of knock off that extra keratin. You can see this patient ran their own little experiment here and, and just used the tongue scraper on half of the tongue. And pretty quickly, after a week or a few, um, week or two, you'll, you'll notice that there's a, a pretty dramatic redu reduction in the amount of keratin building up on the dorsal tongue. 
So again, this is a common pitfall. Don't confuse a coated tongue with a yeast infection. Remember, as we already discussed, candidiasis that occurs on the dorsal tongue generally is the form of erythematous candidiasis. It appears red. Um, that term central papillary atrophy um, is, is what you want to remember. The central zone of, of erythema and atrophy of the posterior dorsal tongue is what you'll most likely see in the case of candidiasis of the dorsal tongue. And just for a side-by-side -side comparison, on the left, uh, you can see that central zone of erythema. On the right, you can see the diffuse white coating of uh, coated tongue. Um, if you go back to the left again, that central zone of erythema, you can see surrounding it, you've got the white surface. That's just the normal keratin, again, part of the, the natural coating on the dorsal tongue. The, the infection is just in that central uh, erythematous zone. And so for my take-home messages, um, you know, again, while pseudomembranous candidiasis may be the most widely recognized form of oral candidiasis, it is not the most common. It's those erythematous forms of candidiasis that we see way more often um, in our clinical practice. And again, awareness of the various clinical presentations of oral candidiasis will really help you to establish your diagnosis and improve the likelihood of providing proper patient management. And with that, I will transfer over to Dr. Kalmar. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, my role from this point forward is to uh, review uh, the clinical features of common oral ulcers and actually some not so common oral ulcers. As uh, we showed earlier, we have issues with ulcerations that sometimes are what we would expect, sometimes not. And ulcerated oral premalignant oral lesions, those are the things that we want to have uh, a handle on and know what to do with next, uh, including management strategies. Again, oral ulcers, uh, they range from the very common to the rare. And in terms of what we will be talking about today, we're going to talk about immune-mediated ulcers, uh, canker sores, uh, recurrent aptostomatitis, um, as well as traumatic ulcers. We're not going to focus too much on infectious oral ulcerations, things like uh, herpes virus infections, uh, zoster infections. But we also will talk about uncommon but important neoplastic ulcerations. And again, how to distinguish those from one another because making a distinction is important in terms of management. We'll start with uh, recurrent aphthous stomatitis or recurrent aphthous ulcerations, otherwise known as canker sores. This is a very common problem, 20% uh, of the population of the world overall. So many of you watching have had problems with or maybe currently are dealing with uh, a canker sore. There is a recognized familial relationship. If it runs in the family, you're likely or your ch children will likely have problems with them. There are issues with the particular um, HLA associations. But this is so common that we, there is scientific research going on. But all we do know is that it's more frequent in children, usually in the late first or second decades, in through maybe the 20s. In some patients, these will resolve and they won't have any problems. But in some adults, it comes back later on, maybe in the 40s or 50s. It is considered an immune-mediated process. <clears throat> the pathogenesis is really unclear, but we recognize that there is an elevation in cytotoxic T cells, in the elaboration of cytokines like IL-6, TNF-alpha, that sort of create this toxic storm, if you will, 
that destroys the overlying epithelium. And one of the things about these canker sores is that, as those of you who are still dealing with them uh, know, and those that aren't remember, there's a prodrome. There is, as this acute process develops, there is a tingling or a burning or a dysthesia that sets up in the area where the epithelium is going to break down. This tingling or burning is going to occur on loose, non-keratinized mucosa, uh, typically the labial mucosa, the lips, the buccal mucosa can be affected, uh, but it is not something that's seen on the bound down or keratinized mucosa, like the attached gingiva or the palate. Uh, these are extremely painful ulcerations. Uh, it gets people's attention. Even the prodrome usually gets their attention. And that prodrome is an important time. We'll come back in terms of management for this lesion. Uh, when the dysthesia occurs, that's when treatment, if we're going to institute it, that's when it should be started. These are usually individual, sometimes two or three, round to ovoid, very shallow ulcerations that have a bright erythematous halo. And again, the pain that's associated with these is usually what people would describe would, it hurts much larger than the size of the lesion that I have. Here is an example of a lesion that would be on the labial mucosa just inside uh, the vermilion zone where you can see a very shallow uh, ovoid or round ulcer with a bright red halo. And again, hurting much more than the size would indicate. Another example, a much smaller ulceration, again very painful on the uh, buccal mucosa uh, with a very bright erythematous region around that area of ulceration. And again, movable mucosa. <clears throat> Here we have one uh, that would again be very painful for speaking, for swallowing, uh, acidic foods, uh, spicy foods would just be intolerable for a patient that has something like this on the soft palate just adjacent to the uvula. The example that I was speaking of in terms of uh, where these are localized, uh, you'll notice that this ulceration is on sort of the loose alveolar mucosa. If I had an arrow, I would draw a line here and show you where the attached gingiva, this butts up against it, but doesn't actually encroach upon the bound down keratinized mucosa. It's localized in the non-keratinized. And this is another example of one with an elongated elliptical ulceration that again is on the movable vestibular or alveolar mucosa, but doesn't bring itself down onto that attached. Uh, gingiva, which would be a very unusual location for a canker sore and apthous ulceration. The management for recurrent apthy or canker sores is typically based on uh, the use of uh, moderate or high potency uh, topical corticosteroid gels. The gels is the best uh, form. Uh, a cream or an ointment will just kind of slide off moist mucosa. So the gel is the best way to apply it. A very thin film, and again, applied at the earliest prodrome. And I can't emphasize this uh, piece uh, enough, because if the ulcer is fully developed, 
you're not going to get much improvement. But if a patient has a prescription, has problems with recurrent apathy over and over again, if they have the uh, topical corticosteroid available, and at that dysthesia or the burning sensation, start to apply uh, four times a day, after meals, before bedtime. Often, uh, patients will say that if the ulcer breaks open at all, it lasts much, uh, it's a much shorter period, and sometimes the mucosa will become red, but it won't actually ulcerate. But again, it has to be started very early on, and this has been very effective. Other treatments have been suggested, have been tried. Uh, use of uh, lasers has been uh, prescribed by some, uh, but that requires a visit to an office, and if these patients can manage themselves, they are very grateful for the uh, ability to shorten and sometimes um, obviate the ulceration developing at all. <clears throat> okay, that's an acute ulceration setting that is very painful. Traumatic ulcers, on the other hand, although they are probably overall the most common form of oral ulcer, uh, the oral cavity is a violent environment. Trauma occurs uh, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, people will stick sharp things in their mouth uh, that will traumatize the tissues, uh, occlusion from the teeth, thermal injuries from hot food, maybe uh, hot pizza with cheese that sticks to the roof of the mouth. Uh, um, <laughs> French onion soup can sometimes do this as well, or even hot drinks can cause injury that creates a coagulative necrosis of the overlying epithelium and ulceration. Ulceration especially associated with trauma from the teeth or from prostheses is much more common in patients that are suffering from dry mouths because you don't have the lubrication of uh, saliva within a dry mouth. Uh, this catching or trauma to the mucosa is again uh, much more frequently seen. The interesting thing with traumatic ulcers, though, is that it may hurt when the trauma occurs, but afterwards, really, they often are relatively asymptomatic or only mildly symptomatic. And in some patients, uh, you'll see a centimeter size or larger ulceration, and the patient says, no, nah, it really doesn't bother me much at all, which is very much in contradistinction to what we talked about with canker sores. Canker sores always get patients' attention. In traumatic ulcers, sometimes patients are only vaguely aware that there is an ulcer in their mouth at all. This is an example of a relatively ovoid ulceration on the lateral aspect of the tongue. This is a place that can be traumatized fairly easily, fairly readily, with the teeth, with biting, with chewing, and as you'll notice, there is a central ulceration and then a rim of white around uh, that area, essentially representing acanthotic thickening of the epithelium as this ulcer tries to heal. Now, on the lateral border of the tongue like this, this area can be repeatedly traumatized, and so it may persist. And actually, that whitish look of the epithelium around, that means that we have more keratin that is wet with the saliva, that wet keratin will look white, and that keratin is actually the food source for fungal microorganisms. Like what Dr. McNamara talked about, it can set up a chronic candidiasis. 
that will cause these ulcers to kind of persist and uh, be retained. Here's another example of the same type of look, lateral border of the tongue, with increased ulceration uh, or uh, central ulceration and increased keratinization around the edge. One thing that I want to point out is that this keratinization blends out gradually from the ulcer. You see the white. The white rim is relatively uniform, <clears throat> but it blends gradually into the surrounding mucosa of the tongue, both on the dorsal surface and kind of the ventrolateral. So this feature of this blended appearance will be something that we will use to distinguish what would typically be a traumatic ulcer on the lateral border of the tongue with potentially a pre-neoplastic, precancerous, or even cancerous ulceration, which is usually associated with some type of mucosal change that is well-defined, distinct, and doesn't blend gradually into the surrounding epithelial mucosa. Not all ulcerations <clears throat> that occur have a keratinized border. If you look at this, it has, oh, well, that almost looks like a canker sore, but this is bound down mucosa. And if you query the patient, they will say, oh, yes, I had some hot soup. Uh, I had a pizza burn on the roof of my mouth, a blister. It broke down. And now you have a shallow ulceration on bound down mucosa. And if you ask the patient about it, it said, yeah, I remember doing it, but it really doesn't hurt much. So that would help you again to distinguish it from something like a canker sore. Uh, an ulceration that doesn't really hurt much. And again, if you query the patient correctly, you'll be able to find out the traumatic or the uh, thermal burn that may have caused the injury in the first place. We see these sometimes on the palatal tori, which you can see uh, illustrated here. Sometimes we'll see traumatic or thermally related injuries on the tori that will be very similar. Won't typically bother the patient much, but certainly will be notable as an area of ulceration. In terms of, <clears throat> one, diagnosing traumatic ulcers, again, oftentimes patients won't notice that they're there, but you'll see them. So a relatively asymptomatic uh, ulceration, in many cases, within a week or 10 days, they're going to heal on their own <clears throat> without additional therapy at all. If it is bothersome to the patient, uh, there is some type of tenderness, a topical protective mucoadhesive that's available over the counter can be suggested and will provide comfort for those patients that are you know, bothered by the presence of that ulceration. Uh, typically, you are not <clears throat> going to be responding <clears throat> or treating or managing the patient with topical corticosteroids because they are really not indicated. A traumatic ulcer is a, uh, uh, an event where the body needs all of its normal healing mechanisms in place. And if you place corticosteroids on that, <clears throat> that's going to retard those normal healing mechanisms. Also, if you throw a topical steroid on an area where there is this excess keratin, that's going to promote fungal infection because your normal uh, cellular mechanisms of immune response are going to be slowed down, and so that will only further slow down the healing of a traumatic ulcer. So topical corticosteroids not indicated, maybe a protective mucoadhesive, and then follow the patient because, <clears throat> and I'll show you an example here, this was a, uh, an illustration 
uh, sent to me by an oral surgeon who had a what he thought was a traumatic ulcer on the lateral aspect of the tongue. Now, in the posterior aspect, away from where the glove and the gauze is located, there might be some edge to this that you'd say, well, maybe this isn't blending all the way around this lesion, and maybe this is something that is potentially malignant. And we'll see examples of those later on, but most of this lesion does blend gradually to the edges and normalizes with the surrounding mucosa, but there's a lot of keratin there. And I suggested to the oral surgeon that one, uh, the patient probably has a traumatic ulcer, but possibly could be secondarily colonized by candidal microorganisms. So I recommended an antifungal, I think it was clotrimazole that was used, and two and a half weeks later, the patient was brought back, and this is how things looked. You see the central area where the ulceration was present, but the rest of the mucosa has normalized. If there were candida there, they have been eliminated as well. And so we have follow-up to confirm that this suspected traumatic ulcer was just that, and that this patient is now kind of free to go back on routine follow-up uh, procedures. As I mentioned, xerostomia can contribute to the development of traumatic ulcers to begin with. And certainly they can cause lesions to persist as well as, again, promote candidal infection. So patients have to maintain good hydration. Uh, the use of salivary substitutes, although they're not great, can be helpful in patients, but they need to have <clears throat> water, ice water possibly, to keep them from being so dry that it persists the candidal infection or the mucosa is so dry that it's being re-traumatized, re-injured uh, by just uh, the teeth uh, or you know, speaking or swallowing the irritation from dentition or prostheses. Follow-up is always important. As we saw in that follow-up uh, for the patient that had a ulceration that had a lot of keratinization around it, uh, with or without any conservative management, if a ulcer persists for more than two to three weeks, then biopsy, I think, would be warranted to, one, establish a diagnosis. Is this something that's traumatic, that's just failing to heal, or is it something more worrisome? And if it is, guiding, again, proper treatment for that ulceration. And that segues uh, to the, the next area that I want to speak about, which is neoplastic or pre-neoplastic ulcerations. These are much less common uh, than traumatic ulcers, than canker sores, but obviously more significant. And most of the ulcerations associated with neoplastic disease in the oral cavity are due to surface change that is either precancerous or squamous cell carcinoma arising from that surface mucosa and again usually associated with some type of surface mucosal lesion that can be identified. These neoplastic or preneoplastic ulcers occur in what we recognize as the high-risk sites for oral squamous cell carcinoma. This includes the ventrolateral tongue, the lateral aspects of the soft palate, kind of the retromolar area extending onto the soft palate, as well as the floor of the mouth. These are the high-risk sites for precancerous and cancerous change. They tend to be chronic 
just like we saw can, uh, traumatic ulcers can be chronic, especially in dry mouth patients, and again, often are developing in the setting of precancerous lesions, preneoplastic lesions, dysplastic lesions, potentially malignant lesions. And those have been characterized as leukoplakias or erythroplakias, and we'll see examples of both. If we see ulcerations within a, a, a broader lesion that is characterized by uh, margins uh, that will point out whether they're white or red, that should be a, a flag, that should be a suspicious setting. Symptoms for these are usually, just like we saw with traumatic ulcers, relatively asymptomatic or mildly bothersome to the patient. So we can't use symptoms as a way to discriminate. What we can use are the clinical features. And this is an example of one. I think you can see the ovoid ulceration in the center. But look at the surrounding mucosa. If we remember back to the traumatic ulcers, there was a rim of white, but it was uniform. It was blended into the surrounding tissues. If you look at the superior aspect towards the teeth, there are fingers or peninsulas or jetties of keratinized tissue that are very well marginated, very well bordered, crisp lines of demarcation between the normal and the abnormal mucosa. That is a worrisome feature. This is an ulcerated preneoplastic, I believe this was moderate epithelial dysplasia, but it has a different look than what we saw before with traumatic ulcerations. <clears throat> Here's another example, and I really appreciate this example because you can see the central ulceration again. There's an ulceration there, but it's within an area of white that is not uniform, and it has a sharply marginated uh, transition to the normal surrounding mucosa, both on the uh, dorsal surface of the tongue with the filiform papillae, as well as on the lateral border. And if you look to the left of the white edge around the ulceration, I think you can also appreciate an area that is reddish. And that area actually represents a zone of erythroplakia. And eryth erythroplakias are more worrisome both clinically and microscopically, because that epithelium is potentially malignant and it's no longer producing keratin. It is sharply marginated, but if epithelial cells aren't producing keratin anymore, which is what they're supposed to produce, I think they're up to no good. So this is a mixed erythroplakic, leukoplakic lesion that's centrally ulcerated. This is a neoplastic or preneoplastic ulcer. And I want to again go back to and compare can you see the difference between a traumatic ulceration and what we just saw with a neoplastic ulceration? In this uh, area, the keratinization is very mild around the edge. It's slightly whiter than the surrounding mucosa, but it gradually blends into that surrounding mucosa, does not have a sharp border. And so, once again, in looking at this, you would want to follow this patient if they needed a, a, a some type of covering agent, mucoadhesive, that may be helpful if the patient was symptomatic. Um, maybe there's some colonization by Canada. Maybe an antifungal agent for uh, seven to 10 days would be helpful. But follow-up would be very important, even if you strongly suspect, which I would, that this is traumatic. And another example of ulceration where we have 
keratinization to the anterior edge of the lesion. The ulcer is the posterior region. This is a keratinizing, sharply defined area of leukoplakic and erythroplakic change. Uh, this was ulcerated squamous cell carcinoma. Another example here on the floor of the mouth, and I think in looking from the as you look at this patient, it's actually the patient's right side, but there's a small area of ulceration, but notice how different that surface mucosa looks than the opposite side, where you have uh, an intact mucosa, uh, you can see the vasculature, but we have on that, on our left, but on the patient's right side, a granular erythematous change. This is ulcerated erythroplakia, which also was microinvasive squamous cell carcinoma. A presentation like this, I would be very suspicious of, and I would rec make a recommendation for biopsy right away. But if this was uh, a, a less um, certain presentation, a leukoplakic lesion that we weren't quite sure, again, possibly the application of uh, topical uh, or a uh, use of antifungal, bringing the patient back, smoothing any rough teeth, uh, taking out the prosthesis, but follow-up, very, very important. And again, a take-home message for a neoplastic or pre-neoplastic ulcer. If it persists for two to three weeks, um, despite the removal of irritants, the use of antifungal, biopsy would be recommended to establish a diagnosis and direct proper treatment. And in a setting like this, again, this is a high-risk presentation. If I have an erythematous lesion, uh, it's not producing keratin and it's ulcerated, I think even a, a quicker referral for biopsy would be warranted. And one thing that I wanted to touch on uh, that is, I guess, more in tune with what is changing for head and neck cancers, um, for the most part, the preneoplastic lesions we were just talking about and squamous cell carcinoma of the oral cavity has been decreasing over the past 30, 40 years. That goes along with uh, the decreasing smoking rates in the population in the United States. For HPV-related head and neck cancers, this incidence has actually been increasing over the past 20 and actually 30 years. HPV-related disease in the tonsillar or oral pharyngeal region, this is 90% of all of those cancers. There are some that are actually still smoking-related only, uh, but they represent the minority of these lesions. Uh, most uh, don't have the strong association with smoking and alcohol use or abuse. The other thing that I want to point out with HPV-related disease is that most of these patients don't present with a clinically apparent lesion inside the mouth or in the tonsillar area or on the base of the tongue where there is additional tonsillar tissue. These are not surface cancers. Many of these will develop at the base of the crypts of the tonsillar tissue, and their first presentation is actually metastatic disease in 80 to 85% of patients. Uh, a lymph node or lymphadenopathy often present within the level two or level three in terms of uh, uh, examination of the patient. And that's why for these patients, head and neck examination, palpation is critical. Uh, just to point out where we're talking about in terms of oral pharyngeal or tonsillar cancer, 
It's that little tiny box, the palatine tonsils laterally, as well as the base of the tongue. If you look from the right, it's a posterior view. The entire base of the tongue, everything behind the circumvallate papilla, is prone to the development of one, high-risk HPV infection, and two, the development of HPV-related tonsillar cancer. Levels two and level three are pointed out here, and this is where many of the HPV-related cancers will be first detected by palpation of the neck and in terms of the what we recommend for evaluation of these patients, uh, going up and down the anterior aspect of the sternocleidomastoid muscle, posterior aspect, a good palpation of the submandibular and cervical region to evaluate these patients. Careful tactile exam uh, in these areas, uh, detecting lymphadenopathy actually represents our current state of the art for early diagnosis. Again, oral lesions, lesions of the tonsil itself or the base of the tongue is not typically the first detection of HPV-related disease. After the detection of lymphadenopathy, subsequent fine needle aspiration, biopsy, or serologic testing for circulating tumor DNA that is HPV <clears throat> can be used to help confirm suspicious adenopathy and direct additional therapy, including workup to look for other metastatic disease. Special thanks to our uh, clinicians for many of the images that we just showed, and uh, thank you. Wow, that was wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, I had no idea all those nuances with the different ulcers or how varied the presentation of oral candidiasis can be. So thank you so much for going through those overviews. Um, now, you mentioned, John, that the state-of-the-art technology is lymph node palpation. How big of a lymph node do we need to start becoming worried that this is malignant? Because, I, I mean, cervical lymphadenopathy <clears throat> is very common for a variety of reasons. Sure. I, I think anytime you find uh, a lymph node, especially a silent lymph node, mm -hmm. that is uh, a, a centimeter or larger, that there should be some suspicion and referral for uh, otolaryngologic uh, uh, workup evaluation to make sure there's nothing present. And honestly, um, there are some patients that are requesting testing, including uh, serologic testing, to look for the possibility of mm -hmm. HPV DNA. Because again, once there is a positive node, um, the potential that that's what it represents, metastatic disease, is there and either FNA or biopsy is going to be done to confirm it. And if not, if that's not done, serologic testing can either calm the patient's uh, mm -hmm. nerves or give them information that, yes, there's something to be further evaluated. Okay. Now, Kristen, if a patient does present with oral candidiasis, uh, is it something we need to be concerned? They have is There's an underlying immunodeficiency or underlying cause for the candidiasis? That's a great question. So certainly immune deficiency is one of the risk factors, mm -hmm. um, but we often, actually more often, diagnose this infection in otherwise healthy individuals that have no known underlying um, systemic issues. Um, some of the risk factors that we see more commonly would be things like xerostomia, mm -hmm. who have a dry mouth. That tends to be a, a clinical setting um, or environment in the oral cavity that is conducive for establishing uh, yeast infection. People who are denture wearers, the organisms like to kind of hide out under that kind of protective, moist mm -hmm. um, environment under the denture. Uh, we talked about a little bit about broad-spectrum antibiotic use, 
um, folks who are using a corticosteroid inhaler. There's mm -hmm. lots of different clinical scenarios. Um, but keep in mind that, uh, you know, a lot of folks, we have no known underlying risk factor, um, mm -hmm. otherwise healthy um, individuals that will diagnose this. And so just being aware of the clinical presentation and making that diagnosis on that presentation. Okay, that's very helpful. Now, I'm also a pediatrician, so I also also often see thrush in babies. Um, now, it's easy enough to have people sterilize bottles and whatnot, but what about breastfeeding infants? Do moms need to be treated for that as well? Yeah, there certainly can be uh, transmission between uh, an infant and breastfeeding mother. Um, so it is often recommended to um, concurrently treat, particularly if the mother has any um, you know, signs of infection, such as um, pain, tenderness, erythema, mm -hmm. cracking, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. um, concurrent treatment would be helpful. Now, I think a lot of people are chronic ChapStick users. <laughs> um, so is ChapStick use bad? Is that something that sets people up for candidiasis? Uh, that's a great question. You know, um, many of us enjoy a nice ChapStick, right? <laughs> um, so it, it, it's more or less the environment of keeping that area moist continuously. So mm -hmm. use in moderation probably is not an issue. Um, but if you have any little bit of infection starting and you're continuing to apply a petroleum-based product that really locks in the moisture, the organisms just love that, mm -hmm. right? So it's going to just set up an environment that's more conducive um, to developing mm -hmm. infection. Now, is all oral candidal infection, do they all need to be treated? You mentioned especially that chronic can be asymptomatic. So do those patients even need treatment? So we do consider it a harmless superficial infection. Okay. Uh, I know some folks will have some symptoms with it. Obviously, in that scenario, mm -hmm. we, you know, treatment would be certainly recommended. Folks who have the chronic form of candidiasis, the central papillary atrophy, with no symptoms whatsoever, um, I wouldn't say it's absolutely necessary. Mm -hmm. um, I have had some patients that say, oh, I don't have prescription coverage, do I really need to treat this? You know, not mm -hmm. really, unless you develop some sort of symptoms. Um, that being said, many folks, when you tell them they have an oral yeast infection, most are, are ready to treat it. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Is there anything we can do from an oral hygiene perspective to prevent infection? You know, not particularly as far as the candidal organisms. I mean, it's, it's as I mentioned, in most of us carry it commensally, right? Mm -hmm. It's just part of the natural mm -hmm. oral flora. So environment that kind of shifts the bacterial fungal kind of balance off a little bit will just allow those, you know, mm -hmm. um, organisms to flourish. So um, as far as like oral hygiene goes, we're talking about bacteria, you know, <laughs> not sure. fungal. Um, so there's not really anything that patients um, particularly, other than if they're maybe a corticosteroid inhaler user, like rinsing their mouth after they use their uh -huh. steroid inhaler um, can sometimes be helpful, but uh -huh. um, yeah. Okay. Um, now, John, are the serotypes of HPV implicated for oral cancer the same ones that cause cervical cancer? Yes, the, the same high-risk HPV subtypes, 16, 18, 31, 33, uh, they are recognized as being the ones most prominently, uh, most commonly found in tonsillar or oral pharyngeal cancer. Um, the mechanism for the takeover of the epithelial cells is very similar in uh, cervical disease. Um, and uh, for reasons that we don't quite understand, uh, the HPV infection, high-risk HPV infection, tends to persist longer in males than in females. So there's a higher percentage of males that are affected with tonsillar cancer than females. Mm -hmm. We don't understand why, uh, but that distinction uh, shows up uh, in the uh, percentage of patients affected by HPV-related tonsillar cancer. More, much more, males uh, than females, although over these past few years, the trends are increasing for both. 
Mm -hmm. Now, you know, today's topic, you talked a lot about oral cancer in the setting of an ulcer. Is ulceration the most common presentation of oral cancer? Well, no, actually it's not. Uh, oral cancer typically is going to be preceded by those precancerous lesions, mm -hmm. the leukoplakia, the erythroplakia, and many times they present without any ulceration at all. Mm -hmm. Ulceration is usually late stage in that setting. Okay. But a white lesion or a red lesion that can't be uh, diagnosed as anything else, that should be followed with suspicion and almost like with the ulcerated uh, lesions. If you have an ulcer that's not healing, you have mm -hmm. a white lesion that's not going away, mm -hmm. a red lesion that's not going away with treatment, all of those should be biopsy. Okay, perfect, that's really helpful. Now, what's the timing of all this? If I have a suspicious lesion, um, is it something I need to get over to the surgeon right away, or is a few weeks, because you mentioned following these for two to three weeks, is that going to delay their treatment or anything like that? Uh, well, I mean, all surgeons will say, the earlier I can get a diagnosis and get treatment going, the better the outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so it just depends upon the level of suspicion. As I mentioned, an erythroplakic lesion I'm concerned about from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And the earlier you can diagnose a squamous carcinoma, the better the outcome's going to be. Is mm -hmm. it something that you have to get it over to the surgeon and get a diagnosis within a week, two weeks? I mean, I would say within four to six weeks, of a suspicious lesion, you need to have a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Need to have the referral for biopsy and interpretation of that biopsy. Okay, okay. thank you, that's so sure. helpful. Thank you guys both so much. We're gonna finish up today's program with a final key point from each presenter. Kristen? Yeah, please keep in mind, there's a broad spectrum of oral mucosal changes we can see in association with an oral uh, candidiasis infection. My hope is after uh, viewing this course, uh, when you think about oral candidiasis, you want to automatically picture that you know classic pseudomembranous thrush appearance, but also remember the various forms of erythematous candidiasis, which are much more commonly seen. Um, and secondly, uh, keep in mind that uh, a coated tongue is simply an accumulation of keratin. It is not associated with a yeast infection. Perfect. And John? Yeah, final points. Uh, any oral ulceration that persists for more than two to three weeks needs to be viewed suspiciously. And uh, head and neck uh, cancer, HPV related, good head and neck palpation evaluation externally is key to an early diagnosis. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today. And for our audience, you can receive CME credit for watching by logging on to our website, ccme.osu.edu and taking the post-test. Join us again next week with my guests, Dr. Jared Hurd and Kristen Brower to learn about moderate and deep sedation. That's all for today. Thank you for tuning in and farewell until next time.